Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Continue our worship now. So, if you grab your Bibles and turn to First Peter, First Peter chapter four is where we'll be this morning. First Peter chapter four. We're going to start in verse twelve. First Peter four twelve. Again, I thought um, last week. I'm so thankful for Chris McGowan and for Kate and the kids. I'm thankful for Chris's uh, gift and the gift that the Lord has given him to teach uh, in that way. And I'm um, just, again, I'm thrilled of what God is doing and building here in our church. I loved last week that we got to celebrate the launch of One Way Ministry led by lay people, led by people volunteering who have a passion for this on their hearts and who are leading this ministry. And then we're taught by a man who's not paid to be up here to teach you, uh, but a man who sacrificed hours of his week to study and use the gift God's given him to present uh, the word to us. And I believe our church is full of people just like that. And I, I'm so thrilled that God has uh, brought us all together here today. So I'm gonna try to uh, carry us forward into 1 Peter chapter four. We're gonna do the end of chapter four today, and then we've got two weeks of chapter five, and then we'll launch into 2 Peter. Now, this passage here we're gonna study, uh, it's very straightforward. And for me, the struggle over the past couple of weeks in, in studying it was that it was so straightforward, and I didn't like how straightforward it was. I didn't, I didn't like that. Uh, I want to search a bit. I want to. I want. I want to do some work to get there. And Peter's like, "No, nah, I'm just going to tell you what to say. So just, just do that instead." But the problem with how straightforward this is, is that it goes against everything that I want the Bible to say. And for many of us, what we want the Bible to say, and particularly when you begin to put this in in the whole of biblical theology of what the Bible says about this topic, it's very disconcerting to us, particularly as Americans. This is very disconcerting. Uh, to read about a God who believes in this way of living. And so it's disconcerting to us in a number of ways, and particularly for me, knowing, again, I just said, I know a number of us in the room today are suffering. Some of us are suffering because of our own deeds. Some of us are suffering because of the deeds of other people. Some of us are suffering just because there's evil and sickness in the world, and we're suffering. And there's the parts of me that don't want to pile on to that for you. Spirit convicted me uh, last night into this morning that if, if I call myself a pastor, I better teach what the word says and believe that the word of God is enough to satisfy and to heal. I don't have to dance around. And so this morning, we're gonna talk about suffering from 1 Peter chapter four. Now in context, he's speaking of suffering through persecution, but the words that Peter uses here are different than words he's used to talk about persecution. He's, he opens it up a bit more to all out suffering, any kind of pain and tribulation and trial that we're walking in. And this could be suffering uh, because of our own sins, suffering of sins of other people, and suffering because there's just evil in the world. But Peter just goes at it here. And he does it in such a way that you can tell the growth that he's had over the past 30 years of his life. You see the growth from the man who ran from suffering when he denied knowing Jesus at Jesus' crucifixion to now this man who boldly proclaims the word of God. So let's read together 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. I wanna talk a bit, and then I wanna give us some biblical uh, theology around this concept. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 
Beloved, if you're taking notes, write that word down, circle it, underline it, that word's important for us. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. And that's my problem. I get that suffering comes, but don't tell me to rejoice in it. I'll deal with it. But don't tell me to clap and jump up and down about it. But, Peter says, rejoice. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. A meddler is someone who uh, spends their lives in the affairs of other people. I'm not saying there's some of us here today. I'm just saying that there are some of them who just invest most of their lives in the lives of other people. And they always know what's right. Verse 16. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name, in that name of being a Christian. Christian means little Christ. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. It is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely or, or difficultly saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is an offensive passage to us. This passage teaches, Peter is teaching the churches here who are in the beginning stages of what will just become exponential suffering. He's telling them that suffering, maybe not all, but suffering can be in the will of God. This is offensive. I think particularly for us as Americans and in the West, this is particularly offensive to us. The reason is that I believe we have become our own idols and we worship ourselves. Comfort, convenience, ease have become what we pursue at all costs. And anything that gets in the way of our comfort anything that gets in the way of our convenience, anything that gets in the way of ease of our lives is in opposition to us, and so we fight against it. And the truth is, Jesus is not interested in your comfort and convenience and ease. He is interested in the sanctification of our souls. And so what God will do is he will subject us to suffering that he might rid us of the idolatry of self. And that's disconcerting to us. We would rather pursue comfort, convenience, and ease over holiness and relationship with the Lord. We want him to save us, but we don't want to suffer in the meantime. We want, we want heaven but we don't want 
what's here on the earth for us. We want our cake and we want to eat it too. Truth is that we love ourselves. We love our lives, our homes, our kids, our spouse, our calendar, our checking account, our school, our sports, and our happiness more than we love Jesus. The truth of it is that we'd rather have a healthy bank account than to have Jesus. And I know we wouldn't say that out loud because we're good Christian people who live in the South and we know that we would never say that out loud. It would go against everything we've posted on Facebook. But if you look at your schedule, look at your calendar, you look at your bank account, look at the way that you spend the 24 hours of your day, would that declare itself that you love Jesus more than you love those things? I know for me, I don't know that that's true all the time. I wanna say I love Jesus, but the truth is I love Jesus as long as he's nice to me, then I love him. I love Jesus as long as he is superficially good to me, then I choose Jesus. As long as Jesus helps me in my life and with a new home and with my kids and my spouse and my calendar and school and sports and finances and happiness, then I love him. But when those two things come in conflict with one, with one another, the flesh of me chooses myself more than it chooses the way of Jesus. Anything that comes in conflict with our primary loves offends us. And the question for us as a church is, well, where are the people like David? David who would say in Psalm 84, 10, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Where are the people who would say, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere? Where have they gone? Because now, our culture and communities are full of a bunch of people and our churches are full of people who'd say, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere unless I have something planned that day. Unless it's inconvenient for me, unless my car breaks down, unless I don't have money to get gas to get there. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere unless my kids have a ball game. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere unless I'm struggling in my marriage. Where are the people like David who would say, it's better than anything else to be with you? It's better than the NFL. It's better than college football. It's better than my marriage. It's better than my girlfriend or my boyfriend. It's better than a new movie. It's better than vacation. It's better to be with you than to be anywhere else. And you need to hear me in this. I don't get paid any extra depending on how many people show up on Sunday. This is the call of a follower of Jesus that he would be preeminent. Is this true for you and for me? Better is a day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I could have a thousand days in Cancun and I would still choose church. Where are those people? Where are the people like Paul who would say in Philippians chapter three, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, which is a cuss word, by the way, in order that I may gain Christ. Of all the things I've gained, I consider it dung 
compared to Jesus. Of the bank account and the rental properties I have and, and, and the way I've progressed in my business and the number of kids and the marriage that I have, it's all dung compared to knowing Jesus. Verse nine, that I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. We don't know the power of his resurrection because we haven't shared in his suffering becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, is that true for us, church? By any means possible. Whatever my calendar has to say, whatever my finances have to do, whatever it costs that I might attain the resurrection from the dead. Where, is, where are the people like David and the people like Paul? The reason why passages like 1 Peter 4 do so much to us and step on our toes and make us so offended is we can't believe that a God that we believe who exists for us to be comfortable and convenient and have our lives of ease would ever subject us to suffering. But what if it's through the suffering that we actually get God? Is it worth it? Is it worth it? St. Augustine in his book, The Confessions, says this. He says, the essence of sin is disordered love. The essence of sin is disordered love. Every sin that we fight has its essence, has its foundation in a disordered love. We love ourselves more than we love God. And you can justify it with scripture and you can do that all day long. But the truth is, we are to love God more than we love ourselves. The essence of sin is disordered love. And John Piper, the pastor in Minnesota, says this, that God hates sin so much and loves his children so much that he will spare us no pain to rid us of what he hates. He hates sin so much and loves his children so much that he will spare us no pain to rid us of what he hates. And if suffering rids us of sin, he will subject us to it all day long because he loves us as much as he hates sin. The questions that we have to wrestle with are, is God good? And if he is good, good, and if he is for us, and if he subjects us to suffering, then he must subject us to suffering because he loves us and because he is good. We've got a disordered love for us, and I'm growing in my conviction that my role as pastor, particularly as teaching pastor, is to build within us as a church a robust theology of who God is. If we don't know who God is, we're not gonna make it. God is good and he is great. This is who God is. And so when he subjects us to suffering, it doesn't go against his character, it flows from his character. The Bible is clear and there's a robust biblical theology of suffering and is based and rooted in the character of God. I know, I know what some of us are walking in and this is not what you want to hear today, but it is, it is what you want to hear today. 
that God is, is in control of what's happening. He is sovereign over your suffering. He is for you. And this is what you need. It's what I need to hear today. When we're in suffering or stepping into suffering, this is what we need to carry us through. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter four. We're gonna hit some other passages along the way for a biblical idea of what this is. 1 Peter 4, verse 12, beloved. This is a word reserved for the children of God. The Jewish people in the Old Testament have always been called the beloved. This letter is written to primarily Gentile, non-Jewish believers. Not people chosen by God thousands of years earlier, but now people who have been grafted in uh, to, to the family of God, and he calls them beloved. It's also a word reserved for Jesus from God. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, God would say at the baptism of Jesus. So this begins as a letter, as a portion of a letter to the sons and daughters of God. Suffering is not reserved for those outside of the household of God. In fact, we're gonna learn here in a bit that it's actually reserved for those inside of the family of God. Beloved son, daughter. It's, it's the idea of love and faithful love. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Fiery trial is important. He doesn't just call it a trial. Peter calls it a fiery trial. Throughout the Old Testament, look at the minor prophets and Amos and Obadiah uh, and some portions of even the major prophets. They talk about that the fire of God is coming. It is only God who sends fire. It's him. God sends the fire and he sends it as a refining fire. This fiery trial is that idea. It's a biblical reference for the refining fire of God. It's, it's God who sends the fire. First Peter chapter one, verses six and seven remind us of that, that there's a trial coming that you might be refined by fire and you might be more precious than gold. Remember that passage from first Peter one. This is continuing that idea. It's God that sends the fire. So it's God that sends suffering. It's God that sends it to test us. But this idea of testing is like, like a silversmith would use, like a, uh, a metal worker would use to refine something, to take it from raw, unfinished ore and turn it into a precious metal. The refining fire, the fiery trial that God has sent, has sent, been sent to us to refine us. And I know that messes with what you think you know about God. What the Bible tells us about God is this is who he is. And he is more concerned with our holiness than he is with our comfort. He's more concerned with us becoming the people he has called us to be than he is with us living lives of convenience and ease. And so does he send suffering? Yes, he does. And it tells us this, that God has the power in our suffering. And let that be a word of hope for you that the same God who created the universe and the same God who sent his son to die on the cross and rose him from the dead for you, to raise you from, from sinful death into a holy life, the same God who loves you so much to do that is in pen power and in control of what's happening in your life and you are not without his hand. The suffering that we're in, God is using and working. It's a particular uh, martial arts um, category called judo. Judo sets itself apart. There's a different, number of different um, kind of 
things that come off of judo, but judo in and of itself prides itself on this foundational tactic. It uses the momentum of the opposition to destroy the opposition. Judo takes the motion and movement and power of the enemy and makes weaker people stronger by taking the strength of the enemy and turning it on themselves. So you'll take the momentum of someone swinging at you to flip them over your back. This is what judo is. This is what God does. Genesis 50, verse 20. You have taken what the enemy meant for evil and you've turned it for good. The enemy doesn't even realize that the things that he thinks he's in control of with the suffering in our lives, God's actually in control of him. And the thing that the enemy is using in your life to try to pull you away from God, God laughs at and says, I'm actually using that to bring them closer to me. He takes what the enemy meant for evil and he turns it for our good. He is sovereign over suffering. The enemy has to come to God to ask for Job. The enemy has to come to God to ask for Peter. And the enemy had to come to God to ask for you. You're his. You're his. Suffering is in the hands of a mighty, mighty God. This idea of beloved, again, is that you are God's child, you're his. Suffering isn't meant as a means of punishment, but as a means of purification. Beloved, he says, don't be surprised by the fiery trial that when it comes upon you to test you. And he says, when, not if, but when it comes upon you to test you. We shouldn't be surprised by it. Then verse 13, Peter says, instead rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Rejoice is to be joyful. It's not to be happy. It's not to be smiley. It's, it's, it's to be joyful. It's a deep-rooted contentment that comes from a settled faith. That's what joy is. When you are content and settled in who God is, that's where you find joy. And so he says, so instead, uh, you should instead then rejoice. But look how he declares this. He says that you share in Christ's suffering so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You know the people who are most rejoiceful when the glory of God is revealed are the ones who have walked through suffering. That's who rejoices at the power of God and the glory of God. In our church today, you know who sings the loudest when we sing songs of worship? The people who have suffered and know the goodness and glory of God. They're the ones singing. This is what he says. So God has the power in our suffering, but also we're learning here in verse 13, God has purpose in our suffering. He has purpose in our suffering. So before we make a mistake and begin to think that suffering is equated with discipline, which discipline is equated with, equated with failure, you don't need to have failure in order to have discipline. Athletes discipline themselves to progress as athletes. Football players wake up for practice at five o'clock in the morning, not to be punished, but to progress. This idea of suffering is rooted in discipline. God's going to discipline us. But I need to share with you from Hebrews chapter two some things about Jesus. And speaking of Jesus, Hebrews 10, or two, verse 10. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, that is Jesus, perfect through 
suffering. How did God perfect and mature Jesus? Through suffering. Hebrews 5, chapter eight says, although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Was there sin that had to be beaten out of Jesus? No. Was there impurity that had to be refined in Jesus? No. And yet God subjected Jesus to suffering for his perfection, his sanctification, and uh, for, uh, through obedience, for obedience. So if God subjected Jesus, what makes us think he wouldn't subject us? If God subjected the perfect son to suffering that he might perfect him and teach him obedience, what makes us think that we're so special he wouldn't do that for us? And again, this is not about punishment. This is about purification. Do you want to be who God has called you to be? Then it's gonna take some suffering to get us there. This is how God works. This is what God does because he is good and he is great. This is who God is. So the suffering in your marriage, the suffering in your soul, the suffering in your family, the suffering at your workplace, can you wrap your mind around this, that it's God who has the power in our suffering and God who has purpose in our suffering? Romans chapter five. Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What does suffering do? It produces endurance, steadfastness. What does endurance do? Well, it produces character, and what does character do? Well, it produces hope. So what Paul is telling us is the only way to hope is through desperation and suffering. It's the only way. He is building hope in us through our suffering. He has the power in suffering and he has purpose in our suffering. Let's continue in 1 Peter chapter four, look at 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, if you are maligned for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. What he's saying is that the spirit of God rests on you so heavily that people insult you for following Jesus, you're doing something right. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, let him not bring shame, but let him glorify God in that name. That name Christian means little Christ. Let him glorify God as a little Christ. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? That's what I believe Peter is saying. This, the same fire that consumes straw will purify gold. Even so, Christians do suffer some of the same things the ungodly do, but the purpose of God is different and therefore the effect is different. Same fire, same suffering, same struggles, different purpose, different result. If you're paying attention in your life, what you're realizing is even as a Christian, you have to walk through the same suffering your non-Christian friends do. And in fact, you would even say, the non-Christian friends you have actually have a better life than you do, don't they? 
They seem happier, their marriages seem better, they, they seem uh, freer, they have more money. And yet we know deep down that's not true. We know that the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. Suffering is the same. We have to stop believing the lie that in following Jesus, we won't suffer like the world suffers. We will suffer. We'll have miscarriages. We'll have children die before their parents. We'll have people get sick. We'll suffer with cancer. We'll suffer with poverty. We'll suffer, we'll suffer through infidelity. And, and we'll suffer through a number of different things. We are not absolved from suffering because we're followers of Jesus. And yet, the same fire that consumes straw purifies gold. And you, son and daughter of God, are pure gold. And so the fire that has come is not meant to consume you, but to purify you. We do suffer, but the purpose of God is different and his effect is different. Verse 17 says, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Throughout the Old Testament, whenever God would send his judgment, you know where he would begin? Israel. He would begin with his people. He would refine and purify his people. And then that suffering, that fire would make its way out into the world, but he always begins with the household of God. And Peter is reminding the churches here, listen, it's coming because it always starts with us. It always starts with us. How many of you are first born in your house? You're the oldest of, yep. Would you agree with this? That punishment always comes to you first, doesn't it? Doesn't suffering always come to you first? You know it's true. It comes to you first. And your parents say, well, it's because you're the example. You need to be a leader in this home. That's why. The truth is your parents have no idea what they're doing with you. <laughs> You're just practice. But it begins, judgment begins at the household, the family of God. And that, that should be comfort to us. And here's why. Hebrews chapter 12, verse six. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastises every son whom he receives. Isn't that comforting to you? The suffering that you are under is discipline because there's a father who loves you enough. You aren't left to your own devices. It is for discipline, the author continues, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Question is, if you're not suffering, are you his? If you aren't being disciplined, are you his? If you aren't being refined, are you his? Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Holiness is not something that we attain just to be perfect people. Holiness brings us nearer to the heart of God. This is not about status. Holiness is not about being a better person. Holiness is about getting closer and closer to the pure heart of God. Do you want to know the heart of God? Then strive for holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. Amen? 
rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. There's purpose in our suffering that we might yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Got to 1 Peter 4. Peter continues, and if the righteous is scarcely saved or is saved through difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And this is a reminder to the people of these churches to which he is writing. Listen, you're still gonna be saved through your suffering, but what about those who don't know him? It's purification for you, it's condemnation for them. Same suffering, same struggle, same trial. Different purpose and different result. So if you're gonna suffer anyway, you might as well suffer with hope. Therefore, verse 19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let those who suffer according to God's will. Now, I believe God hates pain. I believe he hates sickness. I believe he hates disease. I believe he hates marital strife. He hates poverty. He hates it. And yet God will use what the enemy meant for evil and he will turn it for good. And I believe that God hates the sin in our own hearts more than he hates the generic sin in the world. So he will use the world's means to rid us of the sin in our hearts because he loves us that much. So I believe he does allow us to suffer according to his will that he might bring us closer to him. God has the power in suffering. God has a purpose in our suffering. And finally, God protects us in our suffering. Let those who suffer, according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator. The struggle and danger in our suffering is that we entrust our souls and our protection to ourselves and our own devices. So we fight and we claw to get out from underneath suffering. And what Peter is saying, though, is when you suffer and trust, give your soul to the Lord. You cannot be responsible for your soul. You've already tried that. It's God who saves. It's God who justifies. We are to entrust our souls because he will protect us in our suffering. This word entrust is also seen in Luke 23 when Jesus is on the cross and Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit or I entrust my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. This is what it means, that we would entrust our souls to a faithful creator. And notice how Peter describes God. He is faithful. He can be trusted. You entrust your soul to someone who can be trusted, who is the creator. By him, all things have been created, in him and through him and by him. And nothing that has been created has not been created by him. Everything that's been created has been created by him. He is the creator. You can entrust your souls to a God who is faithful and the same one who created all that you're going through. You can entrust your soul to him. In 
1 Peter 1, Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept, protected, guarded in heaven for you. But look at verse five. Who by God's power are being guarded? You are being guarded in your suffering. Your soul is protected. Your eternity is sealed. Suffering doesn't change that for the follower of Jesus. The son of God and the daughter of God has their soul settled in the finished work of Jesus. The suffering you are under is not meant to pull you away from there, but to remind you that you're already secure for eternity. You can trust him with your souls, which is why Peter continues, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You can trust him. You can trust him. Again, though, the problem for us is this theology goes against everything that we want to believe. Because we want to believe that when we say that God is for us, what that means is that God is for my comfort and my convenience and my ease. No, he's not. He's for your soul. Sometimes to get our soul, he has to subject us to suffering. To strip away all the idols that we worship. And this should not be new to us because Jesus let us know this is what it's like to follow Jesus. We don't follow Jesus because we want to worship a hero. We follow Jesus because we want to give our lives to a Lord. And Jesus was clear about this anytime he shared the gospel. Matthew 16, 24, he told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Jesus isn't a salesman who's held this back on us. He's told us this from the beginning. You wanna follow me? Take up your cross. You wanna follow me? I'm going to Golgotha. Follow me there. You wanna follow me? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. He continues, whoever would save his life will lose it. But forever, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? My fear for many of us is that we're selling our souls for comfort, convenience, and ease rather than entrusting it to the faithful creator of the universe while doing good. There will be suffering in our lives. We live in a fallen, broken world. And the Lord is desperate to get us back to him. And he will do whatever it takes to restore us and to heal us. Even through the means of suffering. Sanctification is a necessary step in the life of a Christian. 
I would say that the one who is not being sanctified has not yet been saved. Sanctification is evidence of salvation. Son or a daughter of God, the suffering that we walk in is for our sanctification, for our holiness, for our purification, for our refining. And it should comfort us to know that God loves us like that that we are saved because we are being sanctified. I wanna read a long quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Chris referenced him last week. A pastor who was instrumental in the freedom of the Jews in Nazi Germany. He says, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our lives over to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life. The cross meets us at the beginning of our communion with him. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. I'm bidding the same thing for us today, that you would come and die. The frustration and anger you feel over your conveniences and comfort and ease being stripped away from you in the name of your sanctification and holiness is only leading you to a life of pain and misery. When the call has never changed, take up your cross and follow me. Following Jesus is self-denial tearing down the idols of self that we might worship him and him alone. If Christ has called you to be his, the call is to come and die. If you bow your heads and close your eyes and just process this. I'm convinced that more than anything in this world, we need the presence of God. Sometimes the presence of God comes through fiery trial. Sometimes God has to strip away the things that we've been focused on that we might find our eyes fixed on the finished work of Jesus. It's for our good. It's for his glory. If you're here today and you've been pursuing your own glory and your own good through your own means, been trying to make more and achieve more and win more and love more. My prayer for you is that God would exhaust you, that you would grow weary of it, and that you would find yourself desperate and at the feet of Jesus. And maybe today that's you. Maybe he's allowed suffering in your life to draw him to you. Maybe what you thought was success has only turned out to be emptiness and the Lord now is bidding you to come and die to yourself that you might be made whole and complete. And if that's you today, the way that we find that is by admitting that we are a sinner in need of a savior and believing that savior is not ourselves, it's not our effort, it's not our bank account, it's not our spouse or our kids or our, um, our accomplishments, but 
The Savior is Jesus, the Son of God who gave his life as a ransom for many. That the same God who created you is the same God who desires to save you. He's provided a way to eternal life that you would believe that Jesus is him, the Son of God, the Savior of your soul. And you would confess with your mouth and your life that he is Lord of your life. And you can do that today. So I know there are a lot of us in the room today who would call ourselves sons and daughters of God. And yet, like Saul, we have kicked against his prodding. He's bid us to come and die and he's taken things away from us. He stripped us down to what we have and we are fighting like crazy to keep our heads above water. And all the while he's come to rescue us. And our striving and fighting is only making things worse. The call is to, he bids you to come and die today. So with our heads bowed and eyes closed, I wonder if you need to come and die today. If you need to lay yourself on the altar, the idol of convenience and comfort and ease, and you say, I'm done, God. I'm exhausted. Laying myself there that you might bring me to life. And if that's you today, you just say, I, I, I'm a son or a daughter of God, but I felt so far from him because I've been trying to do this on my own and I'm not allowing the suffering to be a gift of love, but I see it as a gift of his wrath and that's, that's driven me away from him. If it, is that you today, you'd raise your hand and say, I, I need to come and die. I've been seeking things on my own. I've been trying on my own. You can raise your hand in boldness and say, that's me. The bid to come and die, I need to surrender to him. I need to surrender my marriage to him, surrender my kids to him, surrender my job to him. Praise the Lord. I'm gonna pray for us. This altar is open. If you need to come and literally have a moment here where you lay that here. And I know there's more of us in the room today who need this than would have raised their hands. So I would encourage you in this. Don't let the enemy win in the moment. Today is the day of salvation. If you've given your life to Jesus today, you want him to be Lord of your life, come talk to us, come meet in the gathering place today. We wanna hear and celebrate and give you next steps. God, we are a people, if we're being honest, who um, idolize our comfort and convenience and ease. We want our lives to be simple and easy. We want all the things the world promises us and sometimes at the expense of the things that you offer us. And though in our heads we know that you are better, our hearts sometimes cry out something differently and we need you to refine us there today. May we have the mind of Christ who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but subjected himself to suffering. May we have eyes to see that you are good and you are faithful and we can trust you with our souls. Would you use the suffering in our lives even today to refine us that weeks and months and years from now that we would be a people that we don't even recognize? A husband who loves his wife like, like you love the church. A son or a daughter who is so honorable towards his parents that they are drawn to you. A friend who sticks closer than a brother. and a man and a woman closer to you than we ever dreamt possible. You can have our hearts today, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen.